Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram and I just want to let you guys know in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera. I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Should we pray that God would heal our friends and families? Is God in the business of doing that kind of healing? Many people have stories of being healed or friends being healed, but many people also have stories of entire groups praying around the clock and God not healing. If God heals sometimes and not others, what does that say about God or about us and our expectations, about our level of faith? When we pray for healing, are we turning God into a cosmic slot machine, hoping we get the desired jackpot? Or are we changing ourselves when we pray for others, moving ourselves towards greater compassion and self-identification with their suffering? This is a difficult question, not least because so many of us have personal stories and personal experiences around this very personal topic. My guest today 
has gone through multiple understandings of this question throughout his life. Dr. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian and an author, and I'm pleased to be able to say a friend of mine, not because of his theological bona fides, but rather because of the kind of man I have seen him to be. He puts his money where his mouth is, and in the theological circles in which I try and run, despite having no bona fides of my own, he is universally known as a good and loving man, as well as a top-rate thinker. Two years ago, John Raines and I interviewed Tom about his book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, for our podcast, Reconstruct. I would highly recommend that episode if you haven't listened to it, and I will put a link to that episode in the show notes. These days, Tom is promoting a more popular-level version of that same argument, and that book is called God Can't. What he means by God can't will become clear in this conversation, but his final conclusion about how we should think about healing and prayer for healing might actually surprise you. A couple terms we need to define up top because we don't define them as we chat. Open and relational theology. This is kind of the general school of thought that that Tom finds himself in. Open means the future is actually open. It is not determined. God has not determined what will happen, and so God doesn't know it. And relational means that God is actually relating with people and is changed by God's relationship with people. Another phrase that comes up is deism. Tom says he had become a functional deist. Deism is the idea that a God is necessary to create the universe, get all the constants right, set the watch going, so to speak, but then God pulls back and is not active in the world at all. This is a very common view around the founding of the United States of America. Anyway, here is my conversation with Tom Ward about faith healing and prayer for that kind of healing. So we can just jump in. And the first question I have for you is, what do we need to know about your story, Tom, to understand this shift in your thinking on the subject of healing? I suppose you need to understand that I'm a person who is constantly trying to make sense of things and who, at least at my best, is open to new information, changing my mind, having a shift in thinking. If you understand that about me, perhaps you'll understand why uh, my view of healing and miracles has taken so many twists and turns over my lifetime. So you approve of this uh, segment style if you have permission to change your mind. I do, yes. Uh, Hopefully everyone changes their mind, uh, at least about some things and uh, often. Great. I couldn't couldn't agree more. Now, in terms of your own story with healing, can you describe your original view on, on God's healing as well as maybe any anecdotes or stories from that time? Sure. You know, I grew up in an evangelical church, Church of the Nazarene, actually, the church that I'm still an ordained elder in, a little farming community in eastern Washington state. My mother and father were both Christians, were very active in the church. And, you know, so I heard Bible stories and 
heard people talk about miracles and healing, not only in terms of reading from the Bible, but sometimes, uh, you know, in their own lives. I was in church services in which we prayed for people to be healed, sometimes at the altar. And about in ninth grade, I had a pastor come to the church who was particularly interested in these kinds of things. And he ended up staying for 37 years and is one of my best friends, even though he's about 15 years older than I am. And he was really interested in healing and especially the things of the Spirit, the age of the Spirit, as he would say in those days. And that meant uh, searching not only for the possibility of healing, but all kinds of other activity that would be inspired or in those days we would probably use the language uh, caused by the Holy Spirit. In fact, I remember one particular event. I think I was maybe a senior in high school or maybe a freshman in college. My mother had gone to a healing conference, and this was a, a conference in which I don't remember who the person was in charge of it, but they were teaching them how to pray over folks to be healed. And uh, she came back very excited about this, and they had a little technique. She was going to prove that prayers answered, her prayers could be answered. And she sat me down, and I think she did to some of my other family members as well, and asked me to put my feet straight ahead of me. And we noted that one leg was longer than the other. And then she prayed over my legs, and then she told me that both those legs were the same length. And so we had a proof of a miracle there. And uh, I began to read all kinds of literature about this because I was interested and, at the time, I think uh, eager to start a healing ministry. What do you remember happening with the leg length thing at the time? At the time, I remember not seeing any difference, hmm. but being told that there was a difference. And, uh, you know, think about this. You're, you're sitting down. Someone else is looking at your feet from, a, you know, you can't ha you don't have the same angle. That a different angle. Yeah, right. Right. And so you have to trust them. And, of course, you know, I had no reason to doubt my mother and those involved in this exercise. However, I also remember at the time not being sure that it had actually happened and also not being all that impressed. I mean, I was hoping that there could be greater miracles that we could uh, see if we prayed for them. Remind me to come back to that, because I want to come back to how you think of that event now, but not yeah. until we've sort of turned that corner. So then you thought, I want to start a healing ministry. So this is kind of like an early pastoral impulse of yours. Can you talk a little bit yeah. more about that? Yeah, I still today, but especially in those days, was very eager to be evangelistic. I read the Bible as calling me and every Christian, really, to be very aggressive in presenting the gospel. And prior to this, that presentation was mostly kind of, uh, you know, witnessing, sharing your faith, your testimony. And then this started to become into my life, and I began to read books by John Wimber, uh, Power Evangelism, Power Healing, and this introduced me to people like Kenneth Copeland, and I started reading some Roman Catholic uh, literature on miracles and healing, and began to hear the argument, which made sense to me then, and actually still makes sense to me to today, but in a very different way, that evangelism wasn't just about getting people to heaven. You wanted to be healed here and now, and, and this salvation wasn't just about having the right set of beliefs, 
but also it was holistic. It involved the body. And so uh, Jesus wanted to heal you mind, body, and soul. So you ought to be not only seeking that for yourself, but encouraging others to uh, find healing in God. Yeah, that's interesting because a big thrust of the sort of open and relational theism camp of which you are a, a seminal member is a this-worldly focus of salvation, not exclusively for the hereafter, although including the hereafter. This is interesting. Maybe there is a part of you, the part of you that was drawn to that, do you think, is the part of you that was drawn to some of that open theism later, but it just uh, with, with different sort of strictures around it, or, or do you think it's unrelated? Sure, I think it's related. Uh, you know, I, there's there's a lot of relations here. One of them is that I was raised in a Wesleyan theological tradition, and John Wesley placed a great emphasis upon salvation beginning now, and not just about what happened in the afterlife. Right, right. Part of it also had to do with that I'm a part of the holiness tradition, and we wanted to have to be sanctified, which meant going on just going further than just getting your name written in the book in heaven to get you, you know, to go in the afterlife, but you could live a full life now, be totally consecrated, be uh, healed to the utmost. And I think also the holiness tradition has always been cousins with the Pentecostal tradition. And at that time, I was impressed, and actually still am impressed in certain kinds of ways, with uh, the Pentecostal fervor the Pentecostal expectation that hmm. something wild and powerful could happen right now. Yeah. So now I wouldn't maybe ask as many questions about the prior belief if I wasn't talking to a theologian, but since I am, you can go back into your childhood mind using the kind of language you use now with your training. And I want to know what you would say you thought then was the mechanism by which God would miraculously heal. I think at that time, I had a very strong split between what I now I understand as the natural and the supernatural. So I looked around the world. I saw things in the world. I believe God was present everywhere in the kind of sense that, you know, God was watching me. God knew what I was doing better than Santa Claus did. But God would and could periodically supernaturally intervene into an event. And even though I couldn't see it with my eyes, this kind of overpowering activity could occur that would usurp any kind of natural causation and bring about a wonderful, in this case, healing state of affairs. Did you worry at that time at all about the spottiness, the spotty nature of that kind of healing work? Or did that not come until later? Did not come until later. Uh, you know, I had a sort of a very naturalistic view of the way things were going on in the world. And I thought, well, the only real reason, maybe, maybe not, this might be too strong, but at least the main reason why there wasn't more miracles and healing is because as the books that I was reading suggested, we simply just weren't asking. We not weren't enough trusting. faith. Right. Yeah. Uh, either not enough faith or we just weren't tuned in to what the Spirit wanted to do and we had to open ourselves up. Right. And and that's that actually is analogous to a Wesleyan way of thinking of salvation, right? For Wesley, sure. you have to accept the free gift. It is a free gift. You didn't earn it, but you are required to accept it. It's not just that's, given you like Calvin might have thought. Exactly. There's something we need to do. 
and I still believe that's the case. Right, me too. Uh, just, yeah. yeah. Just <laughs> in different ways. <laughs> what about the Bible? What kind of passages were often used to support that view? And, and if you have any thoughts on how those were being interpreted in any particular way. Well, most of the emphasis was placed upon Jesus and his healings. Secondarily, it was kind of the early church, the Acts kind of healings, or the healings we see in the book of Acts. Much less emphasis, or there's much less said about what we might call the Old Testament miracles of nature, you know, parting the Red Sea, that kind of thing. Interesting, yeah. It was mostly about, uh, you know, you're praying to have your body healed, or maybe there were demons that were at play here. I remember reading a book at that time, uh, maybe you can help me with the title, it has darkness, Piercing the Darkness, I think is the Piercing name the Darkness, I listened yes. on yes. audiobook with like a family friend to that, yeah. Okay. And so for those listeners who've never heard of this book, it's basically a book that describes what's happening in the natural world that we can see as the the playground for a, a spiritual battle going on. And there's angels and demons fighting and trying to control what's happening. And you're maybe not a pawn, but you're at least mostly uh, controlled by what this spiritual battle is is going on that you can't see. And so it was quite easy to think of, you know, any kind of illness you might have as caused by the demon that's on your shoulder or following you around. Yeah, there's something interesting about that. If you think of the world as being shot through with angels and demons at all times, on, on one hand, there's kind of a beauty in that, which is there's sort of you're taking the you're taking the value of everything very seriously. You're taking the eternal significance of actions and persons and processes serious. But would you say there's also maybe there's an easy way to drift into some psychologically unhealthy stuff there as well. There's a paranoia that can come. There's a sort of a, a victimization mindset. There's, you know, a helplessness or there's just kind of like, you know, Paul even says like, don't think about demons and stuff that often. Like it's not great to dwell on. And you could kind of come up against that maybe if you're dwelling a lot on that. I don't, what do you think about that? Yeah. It's very complicated. You know, I went through a stage after this in which I thought all of that stuff is bunk. Mm-hmm. And I was very skeptical of any of that. I was basically a functional deist for a while, mm-hmm. not only thinking God wasn't involved in the world, but there were no angels and demons. But I think one of the interesting aspects of that scenario, that kind of worldview is trying to think about the agency or influence humans have in this whole battle. Uh, it wasn't that these books were saying I had no role to play whatsoever. Right, right. I, I, st- I still had f- some free will. Now, every once in a while, you got the impression that the demons could possess somebody and they would, you know, they would become a pawn and have no control unless some angel fought them off and then they had choice again for a while. But most of the time in this scenario, you were you had a minor role to play in this spiritual battle. And it was up to you to uh, do your part, small though it may be. So we're talking about mind changing. Did your mind change all at once or did it change more gradually? Gradually. I went through a period in college in which this way of thinking about healing was really dominating. 
And I took it seriously. You know, I'm not the kind of person who usually sits around and doesn't try to act out on my beliefs. I really want to to live my life authentically. And so I did a lot of healing prayers and really didn't see positive results. The kinds of results that people told me occurred were mostly fairly minor things like, you know, people, their headache was gone or uh, they said that they... Uh, had gotten over some disease, but it was a very gradual kind of thing. It wasn't instantaneous. And uh, then there were lots of people who weren't healed, and most of those were major things that I thought God would really want to see happen. He'd be, he'd be far more interested in getting rid of cancer than, like, my backache. Exactly, yeah. yes. And so this started raising lots of questions and doubts. At the same time, I started to take seriously arguments against belief in God or arguments from other religious traditions. I, I, I'm a, I have a history of being an evangelist as well, and so I was engaged in a lot of what we called witnessing, door-to-door witnessing. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. I took that stuff very seriously as well. And in those conversations, because I knew the Bible really well and done my homework, I could usually out-argue anybody that I had struck up a conversation with. Even if they were right, but at that age, at that age, (laughs) you just had done your homework more, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. But as I read articles and books from really sophisticated thinkers, that start, some doubt started to creep in. And finally, by the end of my senior year in college, I took a class uh, on philosophy of religion in which I allowed those questions to really go to the core of who I am. And I decided I didn't have good reasons to believe there was a God anymore. And I remember pulling up to my fiance's house, her getting in the car and me turning to her and saying, I just can't believe in God anymore. And so I was an atheist for a period of time. I want to dwell there for a minute. Do you remember an argument or two or a perspective or two of those atheistic arguments that really that really stuck, that kind of landed with you especially strongly? Yeah, there's several. One was what we philosophers would call the design argument. I think a lot of people who believe in God, and, and, and this includes me today as well, but at that time I understood it differently – A lot of people say, well, one of the good reasons to think there is a God is that there's lots of beauty, design, structure uh, in the world. And in this reading, I begin to take the problem of evil far more seriously and realize that there's an awful lot of ugliness, uh, a lot of unnecessary suffering, pointless pain. And that had to be accounted for. And I I think, as you and probably many of our listeners know, uh, the problem of evil is the number one cited reason by atheists for why they can't believe in God. I think, too, this was maybe more general. The question of meaning was hitting me pretty hard. Does life have any ultimate meaning? And uh, that was really what brought me back to faith in God. But at the beginning, it was questioning the meaning of life that led me to become an atheist. Yeah, something our mutual friend uh, Trip Fuller, I believe, says, and I've I've heard this elsewhere too, is that the atheism theism debate really ultimately comes down to that question: Does the universe have meaning or not? Yeah, is it all just there? Okay, that's atheism. Or is it there for a purpose? Okay, that's theism. Yep, I think there's there's some truth to that. I mean, I wouldn't probably 
place it that starkly, but that was at the heart of my thinking at the time and continues today. I mean, uh, one of the reasons I now think it's more plausible than not, I'm not convinced that be, I'm not absolutely certain of this, but I think it's more plausible than not that there is a God, is that belief in God gives a framework and a structure to these deep intuitions I have that life does have some kind of meaning, that my intuitions about love have an ultimate grounding, that good and evil, beauty and ugliness, truth and and falsity have some kind of foundation or source. Now, I'm not, you know, as you know, you know me pretty well, I'm not in the fundamentalist camp who thinks that we can understand these things with certainty, but there's still something really important to that meaning question that leads me today to believe that there is a God. Yeah, there's a philosophical problem with saying that all of our intuitions about love, sacrifice, morality are simply traits that developed in order for our species to replicate itself. Um, there's a there's the famous problem that Alvin Plantinga stated clearly, I think, in the 70s, which is that if that's true, it's also true of our reason. And that would give us a reason to doubt our reason in terms of finding truth and the arg- and so to doubt all the claims of reason. I don't know if that argument works or not. I haven't spent much time really thinking about it. But the the one you're bringing up is is more just like, yeah, like do I when I have a really meaningful evening with friends over a long meal and we share our lives, is that merely like I just am lucky to be born a human who gets to do that and there's no meaning to it? Or is something else going on there? And we usually have the intuition that something more is going on there than simply preference and enjoyment. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I saw it also later in my life when I started having children. And I told my children there are certain ways that they ought to live. And, and this question of thinking that I'm telling my kids they ought to do something because there's something so deep and fundamentally true about this that it, it transcends my own personal preference, mm. my the preference of my country, even the preference of my species. I can't prove that's the case, but in talking to my kids, I, I realized I really think that's probably true, and the best place to ground that ultimately is in a, a God. So back to your story, you're now post-college, in college, undergrad? And you're an atheist. I had be returned to theism by the time I finished college, but okay. it was a very, very thin theism. Okay. I believe there was a God, <laughs> and I thought Jesus was pretty cool, and that's about it. Now, would you uh, say that you were still under this same sharp bifurcation between the natural world and the supernatural realm at this point? Yes, I think so, because uh, – In the following years, when I was a youth pastor in Walla Walla, Washington, I was continuing to work these things out. And then even when I started into graduate school, the possibility of deism seemed like a a real – it seemed attractive to me because then I could have a God who was not involved but who was somehow the source of my intuitions of right and wrong, love, etc., who started the whole thing off, the world – But I could set aside all that spiritual kind of maneuvering in the world and explain reality without any reference to not only God's activity, but supernatural beings. And then say to all of the 
healings that occurred, well, either they occurred because, you know, the physicians did their, their, their job right. Our bodies are more or less machines and they figured out the right way to tinker with those machines or the people got lucky or we just don't know fully what, how the human body acts. And so this healing that does occur is just because we don't understand it well enough. And even more better at the time, at least, I could say those people who aren't healed, it wasn't because God is withdrawing God's healing desires. Look, that's just the way the world works. It's cause and effect. And so don't blame God. And what about placebo effect as well, right? That's probably in there sure. some, some yeah. yeah. Okay, so now you're, you're back to a, a very thin faith in God, and yet you have these intuitions that, at this point in your story, they've been with you for a number of years now, that there is something fundamentally weird about the worldview you were given, the piercing the darkness worldview. So when do you start to really put the pieces together of like, oh, it's the deficit of this original worldview that I was given and, and start to construct something closer to what you believe now? Well, I think, as I mentioned earlier, it was the natural, supernatural bifurcation, we'll say, that was at the heart of this. And then my attempts to try to have a more holistic way of thinking that brought me to where I am today. I remember being in seminary and thinking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and thinking, okay, could I add in to my worldview the idea that God was constantly with me all the time and constantly with all creation all the time from at that time, I, you know, I've never been a person who was a young earth person, but by the time I was in seminary, the theory of evolution played an important role in my thinking about God's creating. So the idea that God was creating in the spirit throughout creation today and, you know, for the last 13.8 billion years, et cetera, that was beginning to flow. But what I realized I needed to do was to have a different way of thinking about the power of this God who was at work in my life and the world. Because I began to see that it was the power issues that were probably fundamentally leading me in directions that created at least intellectual problems for why God didn't heal everybody. Yeah, some serious cognitive dissonance there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when you say power issues, you mean God as all-powerful, theoretically, has the ability to do anything, anytime. And so why does God choose these things? And and why would he wait for the right posture, the right little tricks to like get God to do what we want? Is is that kind of what you were questioning? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I... If God is already present to all situations, does God sit back and wait for us to beg for God to heal when God could do it single-handedly? Do we have to cajole God? Do we have to make promises? So I run a Patreon account for people to be able to financially support my podcasting work, but I don't simply ask for money. I actually provide two distinct benefits to patrons. 
Number one is the You Have Permission Facebook group, which is for patrons only, where we discuss episodes and any other topic that people want to ask, questions I sometimes ask everybody, and we can really get into stuff that people are going through, and I'm really active in that group. And the second is two bonus episodes, which come out every month for patrons only. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Those are the show notes. This month, the wonderful and wide-ranging conversation I had was with Justin McRoberts, a musician, theology nerd, and a podcast host. Sound familiar? We set out to talk about this question of whether or not it matters or should matter that various celebrities are or are not or are no longer Christians. In our kind of indie rock world, that means thinking about David Bazan or Julian Baker, Sufjan Stevens, but in the wider culture, it could be Lady Gaga, etc. And we did talk about that some, but we also got into some bigger questions about celebrity, about who is in our tribe, the effect that that has on our thinking. We talk about hell and the fear of hell, talk about the social power wielded by white Protestants in America, and some of the problems with the broadly speaking cultural left in which we both find ourselves. Just a whole bunch of stuff. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Here's a few minutes worth of excerpts from that conversation. Should it matter that people are on my, you know, who share my faith? As a starting point, taking it personally, I think it does matter. The challenge becomes like how, uh, not how personal I take the relationship, but how personally I define the doorways through which people enter. Like, yeah, like the theological thing about like whether you should be in your mid 30s worrying about whether you're going to hell or not. Um, I don't know. Maybe you should. Maybe like I make yeah. like may, may, maybe you should. I don't know. No, I think you totally shouldn't. And I, I don't <laughs> worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't I guess we don't know each other well enough. Uh, I should explain. I don't. I'm a universalist. And maybe, and gosh, I'm going to go way off the rails here doing this. And maybe if people who really took a literal hell more seriously thought more deeply, if it was the thing, if it was the thing you really cared about, really believed in, if you meditated on that, maybe you wouldn't vote for Donald Trump. Maybe, maybe, maybe if you honestly take a literal hell, literally, if you actually take that seriously, and the repercussions of life and choice point either to an eternity, you know, of uh, of bliss in heaven with the divine, or an eternity of it, like suffering and fire, etc. If that's real for you, then maybe you don't make the moral compromise to in, for the sake of political advancement. So I don't know, man. Like, I, like you're gonna find me doing this a lot, where I'm like, there's probably <laughs> some, there's probably something good in that for a season at least. Hmm. Hmm. Hell works as a motivation if you're not really thinking about it. Yeah. If you don't really think through what it means. And if you're the kind of person who does, I think probably it is only paralyzing and actually cannot engender genuine faith at all. That's probably really true for a lot of folks. That's my – that's kind of my uh, – I, I think that's a – I mean that seems take. to me like a real – like a very real landing place. There's no getting around the, the power that white American evangelicals have wielded in America for the last 40 years. It's a truckload yeah. of political and social power. Um, so yeah. what if so what if belonging to that tribe means I get to help steer the ship and one, I get to point out the ways that that has been incredibly positive. That there's a there's a ton of understanding of, of charity and uh, an understanding of, of relationship with the poor, an understanding of like 
a fiscal generosity as a pattern that, yeah. uh, that, that comes from, that is rooted in uh, American evangelical Christianity. There's that, yeah, I mean, it's not that starts with the great awakenings. Yeah. Right. And, and the through line is to modern day evangelicalism. Right. And let's take a step back and recognize he's successful and powerful at doing what? At uplifting the stories and voices of those who do not have power. Like, <laughs> yeah. What wow. the hell are we doing as a liberal culture? Like with the person who is like one of the most successful folks at lifting up, Right. And highlighting stories in which people are powerless and oppressed. That's that, that's what he's been su- successful at. His success now somehow disqualifies him from doing the work. Like how corrupt a notion that is. Like like what It's so, yeah, it's sort of this worry that like it's incredibly the far left is going to cannibalize the left. What it, it it is and it does and it will continue to He's not doing. He's not. He's not making a Bertrand Russell piece. Like he's not. Kind of, he, this is not his. Why I'm not a Christian anymore. Book. This is the way it was often received by folks. Was like this is his departure. This is his farewell love letter. I don't think David ever said like here's my farewell love letter to to, to Christ and Christianity and to God, etc. He was just, here's my here's my here's where I'm at. This is my story. This, so I think these are this. This it's the same thing he's always done. He did it with Pedro. He's done with the Solar Project. He's doing. He's doing now with the Phoenix record, which I don't know if you've picked up. It's a great record. <clears throat> it's he. The thing that makes him excellent as a songwriter is is taking the, what's happening with him internal internally, creating like a, a public record of it that is poetic, that's accessible, that's emotive, that 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 is moving. And actually stirs that same conversation in you. I don't think he's he's. I don't think he's creating propaganda. Not that propaganda is always bad. I don't think he's. I don't think he was creating a, like an anti-Christian or anti-religious tract. He was saying this is these are the arguments in my mind. Like it's not so much a problem with celebrity as it is like the consumption of and my participation in celebrity. Like how seriously, how seriously do I take? How personally do I take the? Like the public creation of someone I don't know. The model of Christ was, I mean, it's a really small group of people who he spent time with. He had 12, you know, he had 12 people over the course of three years. Like that was the investment. So maybe that's the kind of stuff you can really internalize is, is someone who's like up in your shit on the regular for like over the course of like a lot, a lot of time. And outside of that, feel a hundred percent free to say, I'm a, I'm with like 10 or 15% of this and 80% of it I think is like meh. So those are some clips from my conversation with Justin. If you want to become a patron, head to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhaveperminpod.com and click become a patron. Links for both of those are in the show notes. And now back to my conversation with Tom Ord. I do want to say before we get back, Listen to the end because I will explain this reading group that he and Trip Fuller are doing that I am joining. I am advertising for it, not because I get paid. I'm not a part of it. I'm just going to be a participant, but I think it's going to be awesome. And if you like what you're hearing from Tom today, you should consider joining that group. It's pay what you want, and it's going to be um, basically six different essays on six different questions about open and relational theology. I'll say a bit more at the end of the episode. Here's Tom. When we left off, this is what he was saying. If God is already present to all situations, does God 
sit back and wait for us to beg for God to heal when God could do it single-handedly? Do we have to cajole God? Do we have to make promises? Uh, you know, I remember uh, thinking at the time, uh, imagining, uh, so this is a little later in my life, and, and I'm at a church in Southern California that has revivals on a periodic basis. And in my tradition, what would happen is once or twice a year, a traveling evangelist would come to the church and we would have extended meetings in which this uh, evangelist would preach and we would usually you know, have altar calls and people would make commitments. Well, to prepare for this, these evangelists typically wanted the church to begin a series of prayers. And uh, sometimes we would have in the front of the church, uh, usually made out of um, butcher paper that was super long in front of the church in the shape of a thermometer. And at the top was like the big word revival. And then along the side was hours of prayer. And the idea, it seemed to me at the time, was we thought that if we put in the certain amount of hours of prayer, then revival could happen. And I remember thinking, okay, there's part of this that seems kind of right in that we have to, a role to play. Yeah. But there's another part of this that seems really weird. If God can just bring revival single-handedly, then why do we have to do any work here? And then I sort of transfer that on to healing and miracles. If God can do these healing and miracles without anything, any uh, participation on our part, why doesn't God just do it? Why is God sitting back and uh, not, quote, intervening supernaturally to fix things? Can I insert a devil's advocate comment here? Yeah, go for it. If we do have to accept salvation on a Wesleyan view, which you had, and uh, I'm, do you still believe that people have to accept salvation? Yes, I do. Okay. Then why not just say we have to accept healing? It's a very similar mechanism. God want God. God's not wanting us to beg, nor does God make us beg for salvation. God offers it freely. Our job is to say, yes, thank you. And there's maybe some way in which we do that with healing. That's very close to my current position. It's just that it required a change in thinking about what God can and can't do. So I now currently believe that we can be healed and that we must cooperate with God's healing. But... God can't heal us single-handedly, and sometimes even when we cooperate, we're not healed because there are other forces and factors that also have a role to play, forces and factors that God also can't control entirely. So, yes, I think there is some kind of participatory role for us and other creatures, but the really big obstacle that I had to overcome was thinking that God inherently had the kind of of what I call controlling power to fix things single-handedly. Once I got past that, I then could rethink my view of miracles and healing in particular. Yeah, so now we're going to get now we're getting into what you believe now. And right. uh, some listeners have heard our conversation on my other podcast Reconstruct where we talked about your recent book The Uncontrolling Love of God, which is the more slightly scholarly version uh, of your new book God Can't, which is a more lay lay person written yeah so so now we're kind of getting into your your view and your view it's called essential kenosis which is a lot of academics speak what is (laughs) what is essential kenosis in regular words 
In regular words, it's the idea that God's love is inherently uncontrolling, and God loves everyone and everything, and therefore God simply can't control anyone or anything. And control, we mean coercively control against our will, unilaterally uh, cause or force, stuff like that. Yeah. The word that I've, I've tried to use in this new book called God Can't is the word single-handed. And I think that word nicely portrays the idea that uh, the view that many people have that God could all alone do something without any kind of creaturely co- cooperation. God could single-handedly heal. And that's a view I'm rejecting and saying that love is inherently relational. Love is inherently involving more than one. And because God's very nature is love, and God always loves, and God actually can't choose but to love, this love can never be single-handed. This activity of God can never be controlling in the sense of being the only cause in any situation. When you when we think about causes and and single-handed whatnot, I mean, I think about primal cause, first cause, Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas— Creation ex nihilo. This is a common view among Christian thinkers, uh, and it it appears to be sort of the consensus cosmological view right now that our universe uh, had a beginning. But it gets a little more complicated, right? So, you, if someone is really convinced of the Big Bang, do they have to accept that as a God single handedly or unilaterally doing something? No, they don't. I accept the Big Bang. I think it's very good. And it's not, obviously, we can't know with certainty, but sure. there's strong, strong empirical evidence that we live in an expanding universe. And there's good reasons, a lot of different measurements to believe that things were much less complex in the past. And uh, our universe began with the Big Bang. The big question, of course, is that what preceded that Big Bang? And one way that Christians have talked about this is to say that there was nothing prior to the Big Bang except God. And then God supernaturally, unilaterally, single-handedly decided to create something from absolute nothingness. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say this. Science doesn't require this. But this is kind of the shorthand. This is kind of the, the, the orthodoxy for the last probably 75 or 100 years uh, amongst Christians who take science seriously, or not even just Christians, Muslims as well. I think there's a better way to think about it that involves God creating the universe out of something that was previous to it. And I've written quite a bit about this idea that God has always been creating out of that which God previously created. And this creating is never single-handed in the sense that there was nothing and then God brought something out of nothing. But this is a minority view. Yeah, and it just get, kind of gets <laughs> – it gets into a mental territory that is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. I don't even really know how to think about an infinitely existing anything. It's kind of just math abstractions. But as long as you're telling me that I can still have the Big Bang, then I'll just – I'm going to just say, okay, not sure about that. But if it's not disqualifying, then I'm open to the rest of it. 
Sounds good. Well, I'm about halfway through a book on the subject. When I finish that, maybe we can talk about those ideas. Yeah, well, you are one of my favorite theologians in terms of uh, translating this complex stuff into into regular language for a, a college graduate or so to understand. Thank so you, Dan. I look Thank forward you. to that. So now let's apply this to healing. So what's your view today specifically on healing? How does this essential kenosis make its way specifically into this topic? Yeah, so I think God is always constantly working to heal to the greatest extent possible. So it's not that God's sitting on the sidelines or waiting until we do something. God is always constantly working to heal. And God wants creation to cooperate in this healing endeavor. And this cooperation can be sort of uh, conscious, intentional, like what we think in terms of uh, our prayers in saying, God, please heal me. But there are other agents at play, not only in our bodies, our cells, organs, muscles, etc., but also agents and forces in the world, in our environment. And that means that sometimes, in fact, perhaps even often, we who consciously and intentionally say yes to God's healing, who pray for God to heal us and are not healed, we can say that our lack of healing is not God deciding not to heal us, but it is other forces and factors that God simply can't control. This allows us then not only to say that the healing that does occur has God as its source, but I think perhaps even just as important that God uses so many of the traditional means that we think of when we think about healing, physicians, nurses, medicines, etc., in the healing activity God is uh, doing in the world. So when penicillin heals us, in a sense, God heals us through penicillin. Right. And it would never be unilateral or single-handed, but uh, yes, we can say God's is the source of that healing, even though there's also other factors involved. Now, if you rewind the clock back far enough, though, and if you think that God had some sort of intentionality in creating this particular world, then in a certain sense, isn't God still on the hook for whatever I'm not being healed from? Like, couldn't God have just made a slightly different world where I didn't get cancer or something? Yeah, so that's where this denial of creation out of nothing really makes a difference. I do think that God has certain kinds of leeway in the Big Bang in creating, but it's not from nothing. God is also working with forces, laws, we might say, other kinds of agents and powers in the creating of this world. It's just that they would be far less complex than they are today. And then as creation evolves and certain structures and habits come into place and certain species are formed, those agents and forces not only become interesting to God as greater cooperation, but also can thwart God's desires because they have powers, well, they have powers of their own, we might say. What about things like all the universal constants, gravitational constants, stuff like that, uh, maybe the speed of light? Does God have control over those things? Because perhaps I could just imagine, ah, if he had just tweaked that gravitational constant a little bit, then cancer cells couldn't form. Or and maybe something else would happen too. I mean, how do you how does yeah. that play in? This gets really complex. So just let me make a quick distinction sure. between metaphysical laws and cosmological laws. 
the cosmological laws that we think of, let's say Planck's constant or some of the things you're mentioning, could have been, quote, decided by God at the beginning of this particular universe. But that decision is always in response or in relation to metaphysical laws that can't be unilaterally decided. And once these kind of decisions are made, there are certain kinds of implications that play out that God can't override. So again, that's getting into some some real details you probably won't, don't want to get into. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's at least you've thought about it. So okay, I'd like to just enflesh this a bit. So let's let's take an example from my life. Last night at our small group through our church, we went around the room. Everybody shared about their life, and we prayed for each other. Mm. Some of those prayers involved, you know, people being sick and praying for healing. Now, what did you think was going on in your original view that you were raised with? And then what do you think is going on in your current view in that small group prayer setting? Yeah. So when I talk about or think about what I used to think was going on, there are a number of scenarios. It's not just one thing. So at one time, I used to think that God wanted to heal, but was not going to unless we ask. And so therefore, doing the asking was really important, that God could heal single-handedly, but uh, decided not to. At another point earlier in my life, I thought we needed to pray against the demons who was in, who were in the room or who were uh, in that particular part of the body. Maybe the person had a you know a, a bad back, so we had to pray against the demon who was in that back. So that's kind of my old view. My new view is I think we should pray for people, and when I pray for myself or for others. I begin by acknowledging my view that God is a loving God who wants to heal everyone all the time, and that our prayers aren't going to start God's healing action when God was previously sitting on the sidelines. And then I will say, we want to cooperate, God, with your loving healing in this in, in our lives. We want some ideas, some intuition, some message, we might say, although I don't talk about audible messages, but we want some intuition about what we might do to cooperate with you. We believe that there are other actors and agents involved, including the cells here. But we also know from a lot of different studies that there's a relation between mind and body, and our minds can influence our bodies, and sometimes one body can influence another body. We want to cooperate with what you're doing or trying to do in this healing situation. Can you give us, God, intuitions, insights, and how we might act to help in this process? Now, obviously, the kinds of things that might come to our mind may or may not be correct. <laughs> and I, I, I don't understand the ways of God fully, uh, but I also think that perhaps being open to what God might want might make it possible for me to have an inclination of how I ought to act in a loving way. I've heard some people who are roughly in your theological tradition sort of process thought, open and, re open and relational theology, the idea that God is interacting in time with, with his creatures. I've heard some folks in that world advocate that we should stop these kinds of intercessory prayers for each other, that, that we're actually – we're doing ourselves a disservice by pretending that they work if they did work – only sometimes and not other times, God would be a moral monster 
And so let's just get rid of the silliness and let's just understand that prayer is for us. Prayer is for us to commune with God, to become more like Christ. And then we won't set ourselves up for expectation letdown when we pray for healing and it doesn't happen because, of course, it's never going to happen. Your view strikes me as a little different than that. Can you contrast it a bit? Let me begin by saying I understand why people would have that view. And I think it's a very common view among both, well, I'll just say more progressive Christians. Yeah. Um, They want to say, look, I know I should still pray, but the praying is really for my own good. And any good that it it does for others in the world is only sort of indirectly because I have changed. And so my actions then affect others. I think people who have this view have oftentimes, like me, been burned or been unsatisfied with particular ways of thinking about God and particular prayers for healing that have gone, quote, unanswered. In uh, this particular new book, God Can't, in the book that we've already mentioned, The Uncontrolling Love of God, I talk about what I call the problem of selective miracles. And this problem is that we seem to have answered prayers far less often than we actually pray. If, if, if I was to keep a journal of the number of times in which my prayers for healing have been answered, uh, it would be a very small number of times. So the problem of selective healing is, is why wouldn't God heal us all the time? And one way around this is to just say God doesn't heal, our prayers are only for our own good, and either all the healing that does happen is the placebo effect or, you know, just modern medicine did its job, et cetera. My view, I know it goes beyond that by saying that God is affected by what we do because God is a relational God. God's activity in the world is in part shaped by what creatures do. And that means that my prayers can open up new possibilities for God to act, not only in my own life and mind, but because God is present, God's omnipresent to all places, in other places. And so my prayers can actually make a difference in the world because God is one who can be influenced. So going all the way back to the leg incident from your childhood, I'm curious if you could give us a charitable read and an uncharitable read of what you think was really going on and maybe what what you would prefer to have been going on in that situation. I think what was going on in that situation is that all of us wanted to believe God was active in the world and God loved us and God heard our prayers And God could make us better, even if that (laughs) becoming better only meant a half an inch longer leg. And we wanted to believe the best. We had reasons to believe the best, given what we read, understood about the Bible. And um, so even though it wasn't incontrovertible evidence, we were able to interpret it in a way that made at least partial sense at the time. My view today is really not much different. I don't know if my leg ended up getting longer or shorter at that time. 
Maybe it did grow longer. I don't really know. It doesn't really actually matter that much to me because in that particular case, it, it what didn't seem to be a big deal. But my view today is that God does want to heal the little stuff and the big stuff. We have a role to play in God's act to heal, but God can't heal single-handedly. And even when we cooperate with God, there are other forces and factors that may not cooperate and may be the reason why we aren't healed. What are the harms to be avoided in maybe less nuanced or less well thought out theologies of, of yeah. healing prayer? A couple of them come quickly to mind. One harm is blaming the victim. One harm is saying to the person who is injured, who is you know, fighting cancer, disease, or maybe who's dealing with trauma because they've been sexually abused, hey, the reason you're not healed is you just don't have enough faith. You're not cooperating. It's all on your shoulders. God wants to do this, but God's waiting until you cooperate. Um, I'm introducing the idea that there are other factors that not only we can't control, but God can't control. But even if you don't go all the way to your view, I mean, Jesus says, was this guy born blind because of his sin or his father's sin? No, like it's just, it's not anybody's fault. This is the natural world and there's pain. So then there's, that actually brings the second thing to mind. And that is sometimes it sounds as if we are just victims of what everyone else does. In the case that you mentioned there, one could say, well, look, uh, my parents did this. Uh, I don't have any responsibility here. I don't only have any responsibility for what happened to me, but I don't have any role to play in getting better. You know, um, And then we can bring in the spiritual warfare if we want to and say that angels and demons are controlling us and you know, the person is demon-possessed. It can be very not- psychologically convenient that we exactly. both get ourselves off the hook and we can assign demons to people we don't like. Yes. Right. And if you're, you know, either demons are doing it or if you have a very mechanistic view of reality and you deny free will, we can just say, look, you know, evolutionary forces are at play and we're just the products of those and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, That's, you know, less common in Christian circles, but that's one way to think about it. So I think we can avoid those, at least those two. I could probably come up with others if I thought about it very long. One, the idea that it's all on our shoulders. So blame the victim. And the other idea is there's nothing we can do. We're, we're, we're pawns in a spiritual battle or the um, product of a mechanistic evolutionary history. So, Tom, cards on the table, I, you know how much I respect you and your thought and your work. I don't know if I buy this view on healing prayer. I don't even know exactly why. I, don't, I just I haven't thought about it enough. But – Nonetheless, I don't think that you care that I am 100% on board with you. (laughs) My guess is that you think there are probably a number of ways that people might think about healing prayer in a more nuanced and more theologically fruitful, more consistent way. Uh, And yours is, is one of those. It's the one that you think is true. What would you say to someone listening who, who's like, that's really interesting that I've never heard anything like that. It's too far. Like someone who's not there with you right now. Uh, but for whom this is intriguing. I don't know. What's your response to a listener like that? 
I would say to that listener, kind of what I said at the very beginning when you asked me, what do we need to know about you? I said, I don't remember my words exactly, but I said something to the effect that I want to be open to new ideas. I want to follow the evidence. I want to be able to change my mind. Uh, The theory that I put on the table today is one I find to be the most fruitful, most convincing, but I might change my mind. I want to say to, to listeners, be open to changing your mind to consider my proposal, just like right. I'm going to be open to uh, the possibility that something better might come down the, the line. And in the process, pull together the things you think you know best, these deep intuitions, the wisdom from the past, the best of science. Continue to pull these things in, holding them as if you don't know them with certainty, but that really matter that really shape the way you live your everyday life, deal with your friends, your family, your enemies, etc., and then ask yourself, what's the most plausible explanation given all of these factors that seem to be true about reality? Well, one thing I really love about your approach is, as I've heard, like I mentioned, that kind of cousin view that like God just isn't in the business of doing any healing or, or, or whatever. It's not it's it's not we're praying just for ourselves i like that your view can have more charity toward let's just say sort of an average christian common practice among yeah. faithful people who have not spent a lot of time developing theological rigor or scientific rigor i'm always worried about coming to a position that lo and behold makes my friends and i superior in some significant ways to rank and file believers, you know, especially uneducated, poor believers all around the world, you know, and through time. So I I really like that. And I, and I I wonder, was that a motivation for you or was that just a happy accident? Probably more of a happy accident than motivation. I mean, I want to be charitable, (laughs) but that wasn't a primary motive. I think there is another at least for me, seems to be a fruitful result of this that wasn't a motivator, but maybe is a happy accident. Those people who, understandably, as I said earlier, think that prayer is exclusively about helping ourselves, changing our own minds, that particular view ends up being subtly, if not powerfully, individualistic. And my view is far more social, communal. It includes the natural world in powerful ways. It's relational. (laughs) And I at least think that's not only uh, a fruitful way to look at the world, but I think it actually, we live our lives as if we're not just isolated individuals, that we live in this matrix of relationships. And I think my view accounts for that better than the idea that our prayers are just about ourselves. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of modern science and psychology also points to that more matrix-based model of of human existence. Yeah, I think that's right. At a quantum level and at a sociological and familial level. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. I really uh, appreciate it. The book's out, God Can't. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere else. We'll have a link yes. to it in the show notes. I uh, I wrote this chapter in the book on the the book has five ideas about uh, evil, 
the middle chapter is the one in healing that we've been kind of discussing here. And uh, as a tease to your listeners, let me say that I end the chapter by proposing 15 myths and 15 realities or truths about healing. I would love to hear from your listeners what they think of my proposals. There. That's great. Okay. Well, well, we'll see you soon, man. Thank you again. Thank you, Dan. I've got links to Tom's books in the show notes, uh, as well as for the following items. I will be at the Bad Christian Conference February 15th to 17th in Dallas, Texas. I'll be kind of a utility player on multiple panels and leading breakout sessions. Also, I mentioned after the break this open and relational theology reading group with Tom and Trip Fuller. There's a link in the show notes there as well. It's pay what you want. It should be really interesting. It's like six lessons. And I mean, they're really two experts in that field. So if open and relational theology is interesting to you, there's really no better sort of way in than being a part of that group. And I'm going to be there just as a, as a listener and reader and discusser. I'm not on staff or anything, but I'll be in the mix. Um, Patreon. I mentioned it in the middle. You get two bonus episodes, you get to feel good about yourself, and you get access to the You Have Permission Facebook group, which is only for patrons. Um, what else? I really want to hear from you guys. Who should I interview? What topics would you like discussed? What questions are keeping you up at night, distracting you at work? Email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. These episodes are intended to be resources, so please share them even with people who might disagree, parents, friends, pastors, whomever, I'd love to know how those conversations are going, if there's a way that this show could be better uh, for that kind of a resource, let me know. And one thing about the Patreon, if money is tight right now, I don't want money to be a barrier. Uh, if all you can do is give $1 a month, there is actually some scholarship money available for people who want to do this and can't afford it right now. Just email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. If you want to be involved, I don't want money to be an issue. Thank you guys for everything. We'll see you next week.